Chapter Six of the Dashay Diamonds. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Dashay Diamonds by Richard Marsh. Chapter Six: The Adventures of a Night. There was something about Mister John Ireland's manner which I couldn't quite make out. This was what Mister Paxton told himself as he came out of the bodega. He turned down Ship Street onto the front, meaning to stroll along the King's Road to his hotel. As he came out of the hotel, his eye caught a glimpse of a loiterer standing in the shadow of a door higher up the street. When he had gone a little distance along the King's Road, glancing over his shoulder, he perceived that someone was standing at the corner of Ship Street, with his face turned in his direction. It occurs to me as being just possible that the events of the night are going to form a fitting climax to a day of adventure. That Ireland can have the slightest inkling of how the case really stands is certainly impossible, and yet if I didn't know it was impossible, I should feel just a trifle uneasy. His manner's queer. I wonder if he has any suspicions of Lawrence or of Lawrence's friend. That he knew the pair, I'll bet my boots. Plainly, Lawrence is not the fellow's real name. It is simply the name by which he chose to be known to Daisy. If Ireland has cause to suspect the precious pair, seeing me with them twice under what may seem to him to be curious circumstances, may cause him to ask himself what the deuce I am doing in such a galley. Undoubtedly, there was something in Mister Ireland's manner which suggested that, in his opinion, I knew more about the matter than I altogether ought to. Again, Mister Paxton glanced over his shoulder. About a hundred yards behind him, a man advanced in his direction. Looking across the road on the seaward side, he perceived that another man was there—a man who, as soon as Mister Paxton turned his head, stopped short, seeming to be wholly absorbed in watching the sea. The man immediately behind him, however, was still advancing. Mister Paxton hesitated. A fine rain was falling. It was late for Brighton. Except these two, not a creature was in sight. I wonder if either of those gentlemen is shadowing me, and if so, which? He turned up West Street. When he had gone some way up it, he peeped to see. A man was coming up the same side of the street on which he was. There's number one. He went farther, then looked again. The same man was coming on. At the corner of the street, a second man was loitering. There's number two. Unless I am mistaken, that is the gentleman who, on a sudden, found himself so interested in the sea. The question is whether they are both engaged by the same person, or if they are in separate employ. I have no doubt whatever that one of them defies the chances of catching cold in the interests of Mister Lawrence. Until the little mystery connected with the disappearance of his Gladstone bag is cleared up, if he can help it, he is scarcely likely to allow me to escape his constant supervision. For him, I am prepared, but to be attended also by a myrmidon of Ireland's is, I confess, a prospect which I do not relish. He trudged up the hill, pondering as he went. The rain was falling faster. He pulled his coat collar up about his ears. He had no umbrella. This is for me an experience of an altogether novel kind, and uncommonly pleasant weather it is in which to make its acquaintance. 
one obvious reason why mr lawrence should have me shadowed is because of the strong desire which he doubtless feels to know where it is that i am staying the natural deduction being that where i stay there also stays my gladstone bag the odds are that mr lawrence feels a quite conceivable curiosity to know in what the difference exactly consists between my gladstone bag and the one from which he as he puts it for a time has parted why john ireland should wish to have my movements dogged i do not understand and i am bound to add i would much rather not know either mr paxton had reached the top of west street the man on the same side of the road still plodded along on the opposite side of the street much farther behind came the other man too mr paxton formed an immediate resolution i have no intention of tramping the streets of brighton to see which of us can be tired first i'm off indoors the gladstone with its contents i'll confide to the landlord of the hotel to hold in his safe-keeping then we'll see what will happen he swept round the corner into north street turning his face again towards the front as he expected first one follower then the other appeared it's the second beggar who bothers me I wonder what it means. Arrived at the hotel, Mr. Paxton went straight to the office. He asked for the landlord. He was told that the landlord did not reside in the building, but that he could see the manager. He saw the manager. I have property of considerable value in my Gladstone bag. Have you a strong room in which you could keep it for me till the morning? the manager replied in the affirmative adding that he was always pleased to take charge of valuables which guests might commit to his charge mr paxton went to his bedroom he unlocked the gladstone bag again with some difficulty unwrapped the evening paper which served as an unworthy covering for such priceless treasures there they were a sight to gladden a connoisseur's heart to make the blood in his veins run faster how they sparkled and glittered and gleamed how they threw off coruscations each one a fresh revelation of beauty with every movement of his hands and of his eyes he would get nothing for them was that what john ireland said nothing at any rate but the lowest market price as for the commonest gems john ireland's correctness remained to be proved there were ways and means in which a man in his position, a man of reputation and of the world, could dispose of such merchandise, of which perhaps John Ireland, with all his knowledge of the shady side of life, had never dreamed. Putting the stones back into the bag, Mr. Paxton took the bag down into the office. Then he went into the smoking-room. It was empty when he entered, but hardly had he settled himself in a chair than someone else came in, a short, broad-shouldered individual with piercing black eyes and shaven chin and cheeks. Mr. Paxton did not fancy his appearance. The man's manner, bearing, and attire were somewhat rough. He looked rather like a prize-fighter than the sort of guest one would expect to encounter in an hotel of standing. Still less was Mr. Paxton pleased with the familiarity of his address. The man, placing himself in the adjoining chair, plunged into the heart of a conversation as if they had been the friends of years after making one or two remarks which were of so extremely confidential a nature that mr paxton hardly knew whether to smile at them as the mere gaucheries of an ill-bred person 
or to openly resent them as an intentional impertinence, the man began to subject him to a species of cross-examination which caused him to eye the presumptuous stranger with suddenly aroused but keen suspicion. "'Stopping here?' "'It seems that I am, doesn't it?' "'On what floor?' "'Why do you ask?' "'On the third floor, ain't you?' "'Why should you suppose that I am on the third floor?' "'I don't suppose nothing. Perhaps you're on the fourth. Are you on the fourth? "'The world is full of possibilities.' The man took a pull or two at his pipe, then, wholly unabashed, began again. "'What's your number?' "'My number?' "'What's the number of your room?' "'I see.' "'Well, what is it?' "'What is what?' "'What is what? Why, what's the number of your room?' "'Precisely.' "'Well, you haven't told me what it is.' "'No.' "'Aren't you going to tell me?' "'I'm afraid that I must wish you good-night.' Rising, Mr. Paxton moved towards the door. Turning in his chair, the stranger stared at him with an air of grievance. "'You don't seem very polite not answering a civil question when you're asked one.' Mr. Paxton only smiled. "'Good night.' He could hear the stranger grumbling to himself even after the door was closed. He asked the porter in the hall casually who the man might be. "'I don't know, sir. He came in just after you. I don't think I have ever seen him before. He has taken a bed for the night.' Mr. Paxton went up the stairs, smiling to himself as he went. "'They are hot on the scent. Mr. Lawrence evidently has no intention of allowing the grass to grow under his feet. He means, if the thing is possible, to have a sight of that Gladstone bag, at any rate by deputy.' I may be wrong, but the deputy whom I fancy he has selected is an individual possessed of such a small amount of tact, whatever other virtues he may have, that I hardly think I am. In any case, it is probably just as well that that Gladstone bag sleeps downstairs while I sleep up. The door of Mr. Paxton's bedroom was furnished with a bolt as well as a lock. He carefully secured both. I don't think that anyone will be able to get through that door without arousing me, and even should any enterprising person succeed in doing so, I fear that his success will go no farther. His labors will be unrewarded. Mr. Paxton was master of a great art, the art of being able to go to sleep when he wished. Practically, in bed or out of it, whenever he chose, he could treat himself to the luxury of a slumber and also, when he chose, he could wake out of it. This very desirable accomplishment did not fail him then. As soon as he was between the sheets he composed himself to rest, and in an infinitesimally short space of time rest came to him. He slept as peacefully as if he had not a care upon his mind, and his sleep continued far into the night, but profound and restful though it was, it was light. The slightest unusual sound was sufficient to awake him. It was indeed a sound which would have been inaudible to nine sleepers out of ten, which actually did arouse him. Instantly his eyes were wide open and his senses keenly on the alert. He lay quite still in bed, listening, and as he listened he smiled. "'I thought so, my friend of the smoking-room, unless I err, trying to turn the key in the lock with a pair of nippers from outside.' It won't do, my man. You are a little clumsy at your work. 
Your clumsiness betrayed you. You should get a firm hold of the key before you begin to turn, or your nippers are apt to slip, and when they slip they make a noise. Mr. Paxton permitted no sign to escape him, which could show the intruder who was endeavouring to make an unceremonious entrance into the apartment that he had ceased to sleep. He continued to lie quite still and to listen, enjoying what he heard. Either the lock was rusty or the key refractory, or, as Mr. Paxton said, the operator clumsy, but certainly he did take what seemed to be an unconscionable length of time in performing what is supposed to be a rudimentary function in the burglar's art. He fumbled and fumbled, time after time, in vain. One could hear in the prevailing silence the tiny click which his nippers made each time they lost their hold. Some three or four minutes probably elapsed before a slight grating sound, which seemed to show that the lock was rusty, told that after all the key had been turned. Mr. Paxton almost chuckled. Now for the scattering of the laborer's hopes of harvest. The person who was outside the door, satisfied that the lock had been opened, firmly, yet no doubt gently, grasped the handle of the door. He turned it. With all his gentleness it grated. One could hear that he gave it an inward push, only to discover that the bolt was shot inside. At that same moment Mr. Paxton's voice rang out, clear and cold, "'Who's there?' No answer. Mr. Paxton's sharp ears imagined that they could just detect the shuffling along the passage of retreating footsteps. "'Is anyone at the door?' Still no reply. Mr. Paxton's next words were uttered sotto voce with a grin. "'I don't fancy that there is anyone outside the door just now, nor that tonight there is likely to be again. I'll just jump out and undo the result of that poor man's patient labours.' Relocking the door, Mr. Paxton once more composed himself to rest, and again sleep came to him almost in the instant that he sought it and for the second time he was aroused by a sound so faint that it would hardly have penetrated to the average sleeper's senses. On this occasion the interruption was unexpected. He turned himself slightly in bed so that he might be in a better position for listening. "'What's that? If it's my friend of the smoking-room again, he's a persevering man. It doesn't sound as if it were coming from the door. It sounds more as if it were coming from the window.' and by george it is what does it mean it occurs to me that this is a case in which it might be advisable that i should make personal inquiries slipping out of bed mr paxton thrust his legs into a pair of trousers he took a revolver from underneath his pillow it's lucky he said to himself as his fingers closed upon the weapon that my prophetic soul told me that this was a plaything which might be likely to come in handy in his bare feet he moved towards the window, holding the revolver in his hand. The room was in darkness, but Mr. Paxton was aware that in front of the window stood the dressing-table. He also knew that the window itself was screened, not only by the blind, but by a pair of heavy curtains. Placing himself by the side of the dressing-table, he gingerly moved one of the curtains, with a view of ascertaining if his doing so would enable him to see what was going on without. One thing the movement of the curtains did reveal to him, that there was a dense fog out of doors. 
The blind did not quite fit the window, and enough space was left at the side to show that the lights in the King's Road were veiled by a thick white mist. Mr. Paxton moved both the blind and the curtain sufficiently aside to enable him to see all that there was to be seen, without, however, unnecessarily exposing himself. For a moment or so, that all was nothing. Then gradually, becoming accustomed to the light or want of it, he saw something which, while little enough in itself, was yet sufficient to have given a nervous person a considerable shock. Something outside seemed to reach from top to bottom of the window. At first Mr. Paxton could not make out what it was. Then he understood. A ladder, by George it is! It would almost seem as if my friend of the smoking-room had given his friends outside the office, and that they are taking advantage of the fog to endeavour to succeed where he has failed. If I had expected this kind of thing, I should have preferred to sleep a little nearer to the sky. Instead of the first floor, it should have been the third, or even the fourth, beyond the reach of ladders. Messrs. Lawrence and Company seem resolved to beat the iron while it's hot. The hunt becomes distinctly keen. It is perhaps only natural to expect that they should be anxious, but so far as I am concerned, a little of this sort of thing suffices. They are slow at getting to work, considering how awkward they might find it if someone were to come along and twig that ladder. Hello, the fun begins. Unless my ears deceive me, someone's coming now. Mr. Paxton's ears did not deceive him. Even as he spoke, a dark something appeared on the ladder above the level of the window. It was a man's head. The head was quickly followed by a body. The acute vision of the unseen watcher could dimly make out, against the white background of fog, the faint outline of a man's figure. This figure did an unexpected thing. Without any sort of warning, the shutter of a dark lantern was suddenly opened, and the light thrown on the window in such a way that it shone full into Mr. Paxton's eyes. That gentleman retained his presence of mind. He withdrew his head while keeping his hold on the blind. If he had let it go, the movement could scarcely have failed to have been perceived. The light vanished almost as quickly as it came. It was followed by a darkness which seemed even denser than before. It was a second or two before Mr. Paxton could adapt his dazzled eyes to the restoration of the blackness. When he did so, he perceived that the man on the ladder was leaning over towards the window. If the lantern had been flashed on him just then, it would have been seen that an ugly look was on Mr. Paxton's countenance. "'You startled me, you brute, with your infernal lantern, and now I've half a mind to startle you.' Mr. Paxton made his half-mind a whole one. He brought his revolver to the level of his elbow. He pointed it at the window, and he fired. The figure on the ladder disappeared with the rapidity of a jack-in-the-box. Whether the man had fallen or not, there was for the moment no evidence to show. Mr. Paxton dragged the dressing-table away, threw up the window, and looked out. The mist came streaming in. In the distance could be heard the stampede of feet. Plainly, two or three persons were making off as fast as their heels would carry them. An imperious knocking came at the bedroom door. "'Anything the matter in there?' Mr. Paxton threw the door wide open. A porter was standing in the lighted corridor. "'A good deal's the matter. 
"'Burglary's the matter.' "'Burglary?' "'Yes, burglary. I caught a man in the very act of opening my window, so I had a pop at him. He appears to have got off, but his ladder he has left behind.' Other people came into the room, among them the manager. An examination of the premises was made from without. The man had escaped, but the precipitancy of his descent was evidenced by the fact that his lantern, falling from his grasp, had been shattered to fragments on the ground. The fragments he had not stayed to gather. Still less had he and his associates stood on the order of their going sufficiently long to enable them to remove the ladder. End of chapter 6